Hello and welcome to Leaving Egypt. I'm Jenny Sinclair. And I'm Al Roxburgh. This podcast is for you if you want to explore the unfolding vocation of the church in these times of unraveling. We'll be doing two things, reading the signs of the times and sharing grassroots stories. We'll be having some brilliant conversations with fascinating people and we'll discover how local expressions of God's people are contributing to the reweaving of hope in our common life. We do hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaving Egypt. Our guest today is Matthew Petrusek. Matt's calling from Minnesota and is the Senior Director of the Word on Fire Institute, which communicates the ministry of Bishop Robert Barron. Matt is a professor of Catholic ethics, and he's motivated to bringing to life the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition for a wider audience. Welcome, Matt. The first thing we want to do is just invite you to share with our listeners a flavor of who you are, uh, what's been your journey, and give us a bit of an overview, an introduction to yourself. Sure. Well, first, I want to thank you for this invitation to be on your podcast. Uh, ever since receiving the invitation, I've learned more about what you what you do, and it's really beautiful work, and you're doing a great service, I think, to your listeners and to society more broadly. So thank you for this thank opportunity yeah. uh, to be with you. Uh, so uh, as you learned in the introduction, I am currently the, um, the senior director of the Word on Fire Institute, which is the formation arm of Word on Fire uh, Ministries founded by Bishop Robert Barron, uh, who's the uh, bishop of the Diocese of Winona, Rochester, here in in southeast Minnesota in the United States. Uh, So we first met, uh, Bishop Barron and I, in Southern California, where I used to live with uh, my family. And then when he was posted here as the position of ordinary bishop, uh, we we moved with him. We believe greatly in the work that he's doing, and so it was a it was a vocational call that we could not resist. Uh, prior to joining Word on Fire, I spent ten years as a tenured professor in the theological studies department. It's a bit of a strange name. Usually, departments are either theology or religious studies, but because of the <laughs> internecine uh, squabbling in the department over the years, they decided to. <laughs> With the difference, Bring them which, together. yeah, which is equivalent to cutting the baby in half. No one, wins. yeah, right. <laughs> so, so that that didn't quite work out. But it was it was good training for me. Uh, I certainly had some wonderful experiences with students teaching in both undergraduate and uh, the graduate program. I teach I taught a, a variety of classes from the the, the basic to some some pretty uh, in depth in investigations into the foundations of ethical theory and morality and how that relates to metaphysics. So that, that time period in my life uh, was very enriching, but I'm really, I'm really feel blessed to be where I am now because I can take that academic experience and I can put it to work uh, to, uh, to evangelize, uh, to showing the, the abiding truths of the, of the Christian tradition and especially how those truths are more relevant now than ever. This is something mm. that's also been important to me personally as well. Uh, I, I grew up as a, as a Catholic uh, I never formally left the Catholic Church, uh, although like many youth, I drifted uh, and I had a somewhat uh, intellectual relationship with it, a distant intellectual relationship with it. I was fond of its sort of its its metaphysics and its ability to to speak with clarity on natural law and on ultimate truth and things like that. But I, I certainly was not a good practitioner of it for most of my young adult life. And then I, I had a kind of uh, extended trial in my life that led me into a, a great darkness in which 
by the grace of God, uh, I uh, had to make a decision. I'm either in or I'm out. It's either, it's either a zero or a one. And again, by the grace of God, I, I was able to choose that one. And, um, and now I'm, I'm fully committed uh, to the church and to, uh, to spreading the, the good news of Christ. Thank you. So in the light of that, tell us a little bit about Word on Fire. Um, particularly think, think about Protestant audiences uh, who probably won't, don't, don't know anything about this, but this is a significant movement. Uh, share with us. Sure. Well, one thing, the, the Word on Fire Institute currently has about uh, almost 24,000 members. And what we do mm. on the Institute, uh, it's been evolving over time. Um, but but uh, of, of a recent articulation of the vision is really to build a kind of digital city of God, uh, a place for uh, all people, uh, Catholics and all committed Christians, uh, to join online to receive a deeper formation and to have sort of formative experiences as well. Uh, it's kind of growing into a, a Catholic and Christian social media space with a, a formative core at the center. And what I mean by that is there's, we, we have uh, over 50 courses now, we're getting close to 50 courses uh, that are in different tracks devoted to different dimensions of formation. So there's one on philosophy, a course track on philosophy and apologetics. There's a course track on art and literature. There's a course track on practical evangelization. Uh, there's a course track on um, on uh, uh, theology itself, uh, when ecclesiology folded into that. Uh, so we, we can kind of imagine a kind of digital university campus that at its core has the academic buildings, but built around that uh, are uh, communities and uh, communities devoted to different areas, different charisms, different needs, where there's lots of interaction. So the goal here is really to create that space online uh, for, uh, for Christians, especially as the culture drifts further and further into the abyss. Uh, where we can can be together, learn from each other, and then use that to go back out into the to the physical world. So this is really about recognizing the need of Christians to be formed uh, in ways that enable them to respond to a culture which is drifting out of control in so many ways. That's right. So it enable it's, it's giving it's giving them skills, capacity, frameworks with which to understand the practice of Christian life in the kind of space where we are. That's right. One of the banner lines of the Word on Fire movement is um, pro proclaiming Christ in the culture. Uh, so what that right. entails is not, not walling ourselves off, not seeking to create a kind of refuge, although it is a refuge, and, and we certainly welcome refugees from the fallen culture into the Institute. Uh, but to use that to go back out over the walls, the walls are not bad. Uh, they're not something to be broken down. Uh, they're, they're to be used to protect sort of the, the core of the faith, but for the purpose of getting us back out into the culture to locate the seeds of the word, to find areas where we can make connections uh, and, uh, and, and evangelize as we're all called to do. Matt, I wonder if I could ask you to reflect a little on our theme, leaving Egypt. I'm wondering what that first triggered in your mind when you first saw it and um I think you know. Well, you've referred to you know the trouble that our cultures are in, Western culture, not just the States, North America, but parts of Europe. Um, we're clearly in a very dark malaise, and I wondered where you trace that back to. Some people will say since the end of World War II. Some people will say 1979. Others will say back to the Enlightenment. 
there's all kinds of different ways of looking at this, but I think we probably share some understanding of what we might in shorthand call a culture of individualism. But I think that from your philosophical tradition, you probably have a lot to say about that. And I'd really love to hear you explore a little, take your time around what, what this Egypt uh, theme has, tr- has provoked in your, in your mind. Sure. Well, I can approach it from two different angles at the same time. One is is intensely personal for me, but I think has relevance to our broader conversation, and and that's the mm-hmm. the opportunity to escape slavery, and uh, God mm-hmm. is sort of manifesting Himself to the Israelites time and time again about who He is and what the true true nature of reality is and what the true good is for uh, for the the captives. And in Israel here, we always have to remember is representative of humanity. Uh, it, it's, uh, I mean, that's very clear in the Old Testament that Israel is a chosen people to be a beacon for all people, to be God's gathering people, to bring into the fullness of relationship once again. And so the Israelites are freed and uh, it's a, a miraculous event. And one of the first things they do, if not the first thing they do when they get to the other side is they start grumbling. And, and I think that that grumbling, if we take it to an existential level, is the, the source of so much chaos individually, but also socially. And that's this this turn into the self, the, the, the way that I'm going to fundamentally sort of see who I am and what I do with my days and what I do with the whole arc of my life is what do I want and how can I feel pleased all the time? And then you can kind of socialize that and, you know, multiply that across uh, peoples and cultures. And that's sort of sin writ large. And in my own life, that used to be uh, my own, even if I wouldn't have admitted it, that was my basic disposition to life is, am I comfortable and am I getting what I want all the time? And so I was structuring everything that I did and in the smallest interactions to the, uh, to the again, my, my life plans according to uh, my own conception of what I wanted. And that ultimately is slavery. Uh, slavery in sort of its most basic sense, and I don't mean to diminish you know, the actual practice and institution of slavery as it's historically existed, but in a more existential sense, it's being wrapped up in yourself, which is to be wrapped up mm-hmm. in eventual death, decay and eventual death and eventual sort of uh, uh, d- disconnect from life itself, from the very structure of reality as we pull deeper and deeper and deeper into ourselves. And so that's, that's where I was. And when you asked me to reflect on this theme, I thought how, how much I clinged to slavery, just as the Israelites on the other side of, of, uh, of the Red Sea are longing for their slavery. And the real path, the real path to sanity, the real way out is to, to break that addiction to first and foremost, our slavery to ourselves in and through an addiction to the self. So how does that how does that uh, play out socially? Well, we live in a time in which you be you, and I'll be me is uh, is the mantra. And what that I mean, think about what that literally means. That means you create your own source of meaning. All of us are authorized by by the contemporary culture, contemporary secular culture not only to be our own gods, but to create our own idols. And when you do that, when you, when you authorize that and celebrate it, it should come as no surprise that things will fall apart 
when people start actually living according to the ideas that have been presented to them, that we, there is no ultimate source of truth. There is no objective meaning and purpose in existence. We say that, you know, an organ has a particular goal and function, and we still, at least temporarily as for now, still have an idea of bodily health, although the trans movement, the, the, the transgender movement is undermining that. Um, but in terms of our spiritual growth, in terms of our, uh, our growth and character, that's been completely removed from any kind of objective moral structure. And we're all living the, the events, the, the consequences of that revolution. Uh, now, on top of that, we also have this sort of progressive wokest ideology that has hijacked this sort of individualism of classical libertarianism, and classical liberalism, the you do you, all do me, but we stay out of each other's way, and said, no, we are the creator of value. So, so socialized, the, the, the arbitrariness, the, the moral relativism of libertarianism is socialized in a kind of recognition that we're actually more powerful as a group. So if we can socialize the I and become a we, that makes us even more capable of getting what we want well, of course, this is a recipe for disaster, as we've seen time and time again. I mean, it's, it's a murderous recipe for disaster. So has this problem been going on forever? Yes. Is it especially bad now? Yes. And I think part of the reason is, is because we're so interconnected now. And a bad idea can now be proliferated so quickly, you know, through TikTok and through the, the education system that the proliferation of it has really gotten out of control. And so that's a unique problem I think we have now that we haven't had in the past, even though sin's been with us since the fall. Mm -hmm. So the larger question here for me is we now swim in an ocean of what you would call this individualism, I make myself, or of little tribal groups that uh, we are ourselves and you've got to recognize us and do this. And so there is, th th there's a fundamental environment that is resistant to what's at the core of Catholic, Christian, Protestant conviction, which is that there is an order. There is a way of life. We are formed under God and within God. And we have a whole culture that is resistant to that story. So when you talk about, now you've written a book on evangelization, right? Um, how do we begin to engage this culture? And, and let, me, let me frame it a little bit. It, it, it is, is that um, my observation is that, and I blame myself for this too, is that there's, we've got loads of analysis of what's going on. We, we can do all the archaeology of what's going on. But how do we, where are the hopeful responses to this kind of culture in which we swim? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a very, very practical, very urgent question, in fact. And I think it, at this point in history, uh, you know, even if, even a year ago, I would have said, uh, well, we, we really need to combat these ideas. We really need to, um, to show their inconsistency, to show their, uh, their ridiculousness, to show that they're, you know, they're laughably um, detached from reality. And I think a lot of that work has been done. I think the intellectual battle yeah. is, in, in terms of its substance, not in terms of its influence, but in terms of its substance, is settled. This ideology that we're dealing Correct. with, what I mean is progressive wokeism, is patently absurd. 
and yet it has this this enormous power in in mm-hmm. in in all, across all levels of society. Now, one question asked is, well, why why is an ideology that de- that that uh, denies reality in such a, an overt way? How how has it become so powerful? And I think one of the reasons is because it has authorized those who are already powerful. Uh, let's you know they're typically called the elite, and I think that's a fair enough name for them to do whatever they want in the name of justice. So as long as they you know respect someone's pronouns, they can. It doesn't matter that that, that you know they uh, they pay their their workers below uh, a, a living wage, or that they have factories in other countries that are you know employing um, children. Uh, as long as they they say the right words about the climate. They can scar up the earth with lithium farming, right? I mean, it's so it's created right, this sort of patina right. of, of moral legitimacy, literally by just saying the right kinds of words, and meanwhile allowing them to change the the full meaning of those words, so that no, this isn't actually inflation. So think about it: if we can gut the words "man" and "woman," if we can sort of cut them from the bottom and pull out their actual substance, what their their connection to reality, and stuff it with whatever. Uh, fanciful delusion we have. We can we can gut any concept in any word, and that's a that's a politician's dream. That's a corporate executive's right. dream is not to be bound by language, because once we're not bound by language, mm-hmm. literally anything is is possible in terms of, of 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 defining it and pursuing it. So I think that's one of the reasons that that it's it spreads so quickly is because this is like this is like a, it's a, a it's an addictive drug individually because we feel like I'm I feel like I'm a god. And those who actually have the levers of power in society get to use it to their own advantage. So then the question is, is to, to circle back around, well, what do we do with it? I, I think that the fundamental, the fundamental choice is this for us, all of us, you know, people who are listening to this kind of podcast and those of us who recognize how dire things are. Do we seek to reform the institutions that exist or do we seek to create new institutions? Now, my, my own, this is just my, I'm not advocating for this point of view, but it is my own choice on that matter is we create new institutions. Because, I mean, think of the diversity, equity, inclusion, Bohemoth as well. It's, these institutions that have been so corrupted, they become, they become death cults. Meaning they would rather, first of all, consume everybody that's within them, destroy them, and then consume themselves. They, they'd rather, in some cases, literally die both individually and corporately. I hope you're enjoying this episode with Matt Petrusek. I just wanted to let you know that Matt is delivering a lecture for Together for the Common Good in partnership with Word on Fire UK, which will be live streamed next week on February the 1st. He'll be speaking on the subject of evangelization and ideology, the common good response to identity politics. Matt will be exploring for us what's happening to our political and social life, addressing questions about what it means to be God's people in this time of unravelling. You can find out more information and book your place through our website, togetherforthecommongood.co.uk slash events. We'll be recording it, and so if you miss it, you can easily catch up via our website. I hope you can join us. And now, back to the episode. I'd just like to go back to this. Um, when, when you said... Uh, you know, the living wage and so on, things like that get sidelined. I think that's very interesting. So this this language of justice, in a sense, uh, you're saying has been hijacked um, because that's our language, isn't it, as Christians? It's actually our language. 
But you're, it's this, I think I hear you saying that it's been colonised by another ideology. Now, I'm, I'm, I suspect that some of our listeners won't necessarily be in, in the same position that you've expressed. And they'll be kind of, okay, how do we get here? Um, because there's a lot of um, you know, well-meaning uh, you know, and sincere Christians that want to use the language of social justice and have been for years, for decades. But all of a sudden, this new ideology turns up packaged in the same language. And they're not quite sure what's going on because they haven't necessarily interrogated it as deeply as they might have. And so in a sense, they are hoping for the best. They're giving it the benefit of the doubt. And then there's some nagging questions. They think, this doesn't feel right. You know, there's something about the the ideas that are being brought in with this language that don't feel comfortable for me. And because our media is so fragmented now, it really depends on which platforms you're reading or which news sources uh, in terms of what opinions you come up with. So I, I, I'm really interested... Sorry, this is a bit of a long question, but I think you, you get where I'm going with this. What, what I'm interested in is when you said earlier, you used this, um, this idea of wrapped up in yourself, you know, the addicted to, addiction to self, and you were saying how it plays out in moral terms. And, and you, you use some of the progressive ideology as an example. Um, what I'm interested in is, is from your philosophical perspective, how do you see that playing out in economic terms, in terms of political economy? Because Catholic social teaching has so much to say about this. If we think back to John Paul II and so on, about how the economy should be structured. And, it, and you, as you pointed out earlier, we're now in a situation where the obsessions of progressive ideology have actually pushed away, pushed out or displaced questions of economic justice. And I, I think that's a real problem. I, I, I agree. Um, Please just, you know, respond in any way you'd like to, to that. There's a lot of points in there, but I'd, I'd love to explore this a bit with you. Sure. It, it certainly has. Um, well, first, first uh, I'd put it this way. Once we're dealing on the, the terms of progressive ideology, what the terms that we're dealing with is a ideology that overtly tells us that there's no such thing as universal truth, right? Because that's, that you, know, you just they throw the epithets at right. That's that's uh, that's uh, racist. It's white supremacist. It's uh, heterophobic or homophobic. It's transphobic, right? So they just the the epithets, the the barrage of dirty words for any claim about universal truth. Okay, so they've established that as their baseline reality: no universal truth. And then on top of that, which is to say, on top of nothing, they get they then send this barrage of moral claims. And again, the fundamental problem there is once we've granted the premise that there's no such thing as universal truth, then we have authorized tyranny. By definition, we've authorized tyranny because any, any use of force, any, any system whatsoever, whether it's political or economic, is going to be arbitrary. So what Pope Benedict XVI famously called this, he called it the, the dictatorship of religion. I'm sorry, the dictatorship of relativism, the dictatorship of relativism. What he meant by that is that once we remove universal truth, those who are in power get to do whatever they want. We see that also playing out in the economic realm as well. So there are, there's no longer any kind of sense in which economics serves any other purpose than making money for those who are already positioned to make the most money anyway. 
And any complaint about that, any contestation to that will fall into the bucket of, well, that's just you making stuff up. So it really becomes, it really, this whole thing becomes a problem of authorizing tyranny. And it's political tyranny, it's individual, the override of individual rights, it's the, the euthanasia and the death regimes, and it's also economic. They're all interconnected. That's so interesting. So the pushback to globalization, which you know manifests itself, say, in the truckers in Canada or in the Gilets Jaunes in France or the farmers in the Netherlands, um, all of these are people saying, "Hold on a minute, we we didn't vote for this. We didn't. Right. We don't want this uh, this tyranny imposed upon us." And then they're labelled populist, or they're labelled troublemakers, or all, all kinds of other um, unfavourable labels. Um, is that what you're talking about? That's that's a big part of it. Absolutely, it's the delegitimization of mm-hmm. the dissent, and, and that's and that's why I th- mm-hmm. think of the primary category now that, that those who have the, those who have embraced progressive ideology whether they believe, actually believe in it or not, the primary category they use to silence is to say, this makes me feel unsafe. So think about it, or it makes us feel unsafe, or this, this uh, makes yeah. the planet as itself gets per- personalized and the planet feels unsafe. And think about that. The category of truth has been removed. It's, the question isn't, is it true or false? It's, does it make a aggrieved group, however that's defined, feel safe or not? That is an absolute carte blanche for total tyranny. Anything, yeah. Anything. So that that's a technique for closing down discussion, isn't oh, it? I mean, to, it's, a, it's a technique for chilling the possibility of well, deliberation. That's right, and it's not just chilling. Think about it, though. I mean, it's it's not just that you're saying something mm-hmm. that makes me feel unsafe. It's the category of unsafe as itself. So what I've now said is words are mm-hmm. somehow equivalent to violence. And if you're saying, if you're using now violence with me, well, I can use violence with you too, right? So it's, once again, it's the, it's the gutting of language where violence is now seen as, as resistance and resistance is now seen as, as uh, itself a form of, 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 of just words, empty words. The whole, the whole thing's been, it's just rubble now. And because it makes people so afraid of speaking, it's actually undermining trust between human beings. So it's fundamentally an assault on relationship. I'm hearing you say that. Is that oh, right? Absolutely. And what comes to mind uh, in the UK context is the woman who was arrested for silently praying within the vicinity of, a, of an abortion mm-hmm. clinic. Uh, I mean, if, if we really, mm-hmm. I know we, we, we hear that and we're like, boy, things are really bad nowadays. But if we really take seriously what that, what that, what that shows about the status of where we are now as a culture. And I guarantee you, if it weren't for the First Amendment in the United States, that would be happening everywhere here. Uh, it's saying that your existence, your very existence can be a threat to me. Mm-hmm. The fact that you are there is dangerous to me. So that authorizes me to do what? Remove you. It's the recipe for genocide. I know that sounds like hyperbolic, but it's actually the recipe for genocide. You're probably familiar with... Uh the Jewish intellectual George Steiner. Um, you wrote a book called Real Presence in which he talks about the, the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century, this, this great transformation, which was the separation or the breaking of the link between reality and language so that there was no longer any connection, that the words that I use that I'm speaking are simply my words 
and they're not connected in any way to any reality. And, and Steiner describes this as a fundamental break that remakes our whole society and culture. I think that's what you're pressing into. And you're describing the outworkings of, I mean, to, to put it in Christian language, the fundamental rejection of God at the center of the world. Yes, and, and one way to, uh, to to give that a little bit more of a, um, a philosophical uh, sort of underpinning from sure. a Christian perspective is to say there's no more logos. So, so God, from a Christian perspective, is both the, the incarnational Savior who enters into time and space and at the same time the logos through which everything is created, as we see in the, in the Gospel of John, for example. And so to say that to, to remove God from, from reality doesn't just mean we've taken out some sort of vertical presence in our life. We've taken out the floor at, at the same time. We've done both. Yes. So I want to, I want to return uh, and, and connect these conversations. Um, the early on, I, I asked you about how we actually engage the space that we've just been describing, and what I found fascinating is that you, towards the end of that comes that you you talked about the need to remake institutions or refound institutions, and it's that notion that I, I want to check because I may be mishearing that that somehow. In the midst of this, we, we do need the apologetics, all of those things. But you're saying they're done. We've got them. But what we need is either a renewal or a remaking of our institutions. If I heard you right, could you say more about that, Matt? Yeah. So I, I, I said that my, my personal uh, response to that question is we have to rebuild. Now, I, I, I want to emphasize, I think that's prudential meaning that it depends on the people and it depends on the institutions. And some institutions perhaps can be saved. One way that we've seen this happen on a very local level in the United States is some school boards in local communities have been taken back, as it were. Uh, the parents have, uh, 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 have gotten voted into office, so through a legitimate process, and now they're retaking the curriculum. The problem with that, however, is that the... <laughs> The, this is particularly United States, they're still all under the Department of Education. And so it's this, it's these small skirmishes that have been won, but there's still this behemoth. So I, again, for, for, for reasons that have to do just with empirical reality, meaning just the way things actually are in these institutions, I think we have to pull out uh, en masse and, 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 and construct new institutions. Um, but I don't want to say that people who do believe that institutions can be reformed are doing something wrong or a fool's errand. I, I think that, it, again, it depends on the institution. It depends on the people. The illustration you gave raises another piece, which is that a local school board uh, in its own local context begins to try to reinstitute a different narrative. Um, and... In that sense, the institutions, the school boards more broadly, simply, they, they represent quite bureaucratized systems that are distance from people on the ground. So is what's going on in your mind the, the need to rediscover or recover forms of belonging in the local and on the ground literally over against <laughs> these larger abstracted institutions that, that control us. 
Yes, yes. And one, one way to put that in terms that are um, very prevalent in the Catholic in, uh, social thought tradition is a return to subsidiarity. So there, there's two, there's right. two, there's more than two dominant principles, but, but two of them are solidarity. So solidarity is the recognition that to try and rehabilitate a once noble phrase, we are all in this together as a species. Uh, and so we have to recognize that, uh, you know, what we do at local levels does influence what happens at the, um, at, at greater, greater, greater areas of, of, of social organization. Uh, and, and it goes both ways. So, we, we all are on this together as human beings. We are one race from a, a Christian perspective. We're all made in the image of likeness of God. And so it's not a but. And we are made to live in physical communities. We're, we are made to live in closeness with one another. And the goal is to, to be able to solve the problems we need to solve at the most local level possible to the extent that that's possible. Mm-hmm. So that becomes a priority for us is to live, to know the people who know the people when we're actually governing us, if we can't know them directly. Once we, once it gets, and this is why all these dystopian, it's happening in real time, but you know, think of dystopian novels and dystopian movies. They always have these like global, these global governing structures, right? Uh, and that's, that's not accidental because when, when people are removed from their governing structures, tyranny will ensue. It's built into human nature that we're made to be in local communities. If we remove that, then we've opened the door, another door to tyranny. So how did you think, how do you think we got to this place where um, ordinary citizens became comfortable with handing over the responsibility for whether it's education, social life, whether it's the care of the other, to these distanced institutions, let's say the state, for example. Uh, how, did that, how did that, in your mind, come about because we've got to understand that if we're going to begin to address it. That's right. I think it's a perfect storm. Uh, by perfect, I don't mean good. I mean that all the necessary ingredients came together roughly at the same time historically. Uh, one of them is this, this sort of uh, lack of belief in God that was slowly eroding. Now it's sort of dropped off a cliff now. I mean, so it was, it was going down Correct. over time. And, and now it's, it's, it's uh, dropped, uh, it's off a precipice. But this idea that we don't need God, we don't need religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, in fact, are bad forces. But if you sort of look back in time, uh, as those ideas were starting to gain traction and steam, especially in universities, life was pretty much the same. One of the things that I do with our yep, kids exactly. is we watch a lot of movies from the 90s. And we can see that the, the, the characters that I grew up with say the kinds of things that people say now about, you know, no God and, and UBU and IB, all those sorts of things. But there was still this infrastructure holding them up. So they didn't have to live the consequences of their own ideas because the grownups were still, the grownups were still taking care of business. But then they became the grownups. We became the grownups and we actually started living according to the things that we were saying. And then, and then so we have that sort of social dissolution there. We also have the problem of, of technology. I mean, we have this, so we have, right. an, we have, and it, all of us, not all of us, many of us have an addiction. Uh, and I mean, th- think about it. This, like, that's another thing I notice when I watch older movies, by which I mean like early, early 2000s. People are in <laughs> public looking at each other. Think about it. They're actually, we're actually like interacting yeah. with each other and people just sit on a bench in a park, right? And observe. So we were embedded. 
So we all got pulled into ourselves by our own fault. I'm not blaming, you know, technology itself. It's we're the ones who started taking the drug. So that happens. And then we also have um, sort of the, the globalization movement happen economically, which I'm not saying that, you know, international markets are bad in of themselves, but we have this uprooting of the, of, uh, of the, the, of going to work and staying at the same place in a community over a long time with manufacturing getting cast across the world. Um, plus we have then, you know, fast forward, then we have COVID that literally locks us up into our homes and separates us. And then we have this, the, the climate tyranny as well. And I will call it climate tyranny because uh, I don't think it's actually attached to goals, the, 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 the well-being of the planet, as it were. Uh, uh, that also its goal is to centralize power. And so all of these things happening at the same time have just mm-hmm. completely cut us off from the, the sources of connection that we used to have. Mm. So let, let's let's just go into that a little bit. So I, I really like what you said about subsidiarity. And when you're talking about this climate tyranny, just to be clear, I think what I hear you saying is that decisions are being made over people's heads and so they feel powerless and they feel that global decisions are being made outside the democratic process. That's why um, there's a problem with it. It's just to be clear, you're not saying that there isn't a problem with climate change. You're saying it's the, it's the approach that's wrong. Is that right? Absolutely. I'm not making a statement on, on the, the empirical reality of climate change. Yeah. I'm talking about the, the process. I'm only asking that because I know that there will be people listening who will want me to clarify that. Fair enough. But let me pause yeah. on like, so, so mm-hmm. again, I'm not going to make an empirical statement on, on climate change. It's, it's just not going to happen uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that I'm not, I don't, I don't think that's really the issue. The issue is, is how do we deal with it? How do we deal with it? And our response to that question has been to completely give over the sovereignty of individuals and communities and even nations to a body of people who, as you just put it, are making not only decisions, they're making impositions independently of Mm -hmm. the people. And I think it's a valid question to ask. Let's say that these, these were truly implemented according to the way that they say they're going to be implemented, which is highly unlikely, but let's, let's say that's the possibility. What would that mean for you and for me, would that mean really that I'm not going to be, that I'm going to be born with a certain amount of climate credits to my name and that I can, I can sell them to get a, you know, a little, so I can, you know, maybe get a, a small home, but you can, I mean, there are, there are real yeah. plans for that, that I'm not going to be able to have my own car. So set aside the actual empirical reality so of climate and actually focus on what's putatively being done in its name. Yeah. So my understanding of subsidiarity in the Catholic tradition is that it's the, the purpose of it is to uphold the integrity of the human person, right? It's to enable agency to stay with the human being. And you were saying just now, you know, about um, relationships on the ground, we're embedded, we're you know, embodied to human beings, we're meant to be living in relationship in local communities. And, and we should have some, some purchase on the determination of our lives and, you know, whether that's expressed in organized politics or whether it's in terms of just organizing ourselves locally. That's, that's actually a fundamental part of Catholic social teaching tradition, that I understand it, and its purpose is to uphold the d- dignity and the integrity of the human being. So what you're saying there is that this, sen- this tendency to centralize power is, is fundamentally against what the Catholic 
social teaching tradition is saying. And the Catholic social te- teaching tradition comes from biblical justice, right? I mean, that for our audience, which is a mixed audience, I think it's important to unpack that a little bit. You know, where, where does this, um, this uh, understanding of justice, this particular model of justice come from? It's rooted in, in biblical, biblical ideas of right relationship, right? Isn't it? I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to hear from, from your understanding of the Catholic social teaching tradition, why, why has the church and many people in the churches drifted from that tr- justice tradition? As you said earlier, sometimes people get drawn off into libertarianism and others get drawn off into a totalitarian uh, position. There's an awful lot of mission drift, and I, I know you've written about that and you've thought about it a lot. Um, and I'm, I am very interested in this um, tendency of Christians on the left or the right to weaponize Christianity for their own ends, or, or just out of ignorance, you know, well-meaning people simply not knowing their own tradition. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think. I think it will take perhaps uh, generations before we will have to look back and see, you know, do a historical analysis to see why Christianity was so eager to to turn over the keys to the house as it, as it were, uh, because it certainly has. And that that's, that's been the case in, in the Catholic church as well, uh, to secular culture. So to give it over to secular culture and say, you dictate the terms and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll meet you wherever you're at. Um, I, I don't, I, I mean, I, I have some ideas that are highly personal about why, why that's happened, but it, it has, it has happened and it's a problem that's it ha- that it's happened. And I think one of the the fundamental problems at, at the core of all of this, so setting aside intentions, which I think it's fair, I think it's fair to actually look at intentions, but setting aside the question of intentions, uh, we, we just have the reality that justice cannot exist independent of an objective foundation, period. It doesn't, it's a, it's a meaningless concept. It has no content. And so once you have any anyone or any institution come along and say, look, we can talk about social justice. We can talk about environmental justice. We can talk about individual justice, but we don't need to talk about the ground of justice, the source of justice, the foundation of justice, what makes justice real as opposed to made up or superstitious. We've lost, again, we've, we've lost literally everything at that point. We just wanted to say a very big thank you to you, our listeners, and especially to our paid subscribers. Being a paid subscriber not only gives you early access to podcast episodes as they come out, but it also soon will include access to our new monthly discussion forum. Starting in late January, paid subscribers can participate and join together with us in a deeper reflection over Zoom. We're excited to offer a space for you to join us and others in discussions about the challenges facing our churches and to explore the imaginative ways in which Christians are forming communities of hope. So do consider becoming a paid subscriber. It will help us continue this work and enable you to meet others on this journey. Just click the link below in the description or go to our Substack page, leavingegyptpodcast.substack.com. So a big thank you again to all our paid subscribers. Now back to the episode. Matt, part of this question of uh, what happened, um, some of this goes back 
particularly in North America, that at the end of the Second World War, um, in North America, we came out of this with a great sense of power and prowess and, and a huge economic engine. And so the state and capitalism made a promise. Uh, they made a contract and they said, if you give us your trust, if you give us your faith, we will give you the good things in life. And it seems to me, particularly with the demographic shifts that came out of the Second World War, that to a large extent, Protestant Catholic churches, particularly Protestant, they bought that hook, line, and sinker so that God simply became a neat um, affirmation of the good life that the state and capitalism were promising them. And to your point, I, I, to my mind, that became the, the narrative that got bought into, but now it's all coming apart. And, 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 and so there's no capacity, even in the churches, to reference back to a grounding in God's life and presence. I don't know whether that makes any sense or you have any comment on that. I, I think that's right. I think that's a, a very astute analysis, um, very briefly, of, of where we've been and, and what led us to where we are now. Uh, we, we are in a time of the great delegitimization of, of institutions across the board. I mean, I mean look at, look at uh, the trust in the media, for example, uh, or look at the trust in government or the trust in corporations. No one trusts anything. And... You know, I don't want to needlessly feed cynicism um, or, you know, to push anger buttons because it's satisfying. But I think it's fair to say that institutions are no longer trustworthy in a very general sense. I mean, just to give you one example, I think it was the, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics. I think that's the name. So it was the National Board of the United States of, of, of Pediatricians. Uh, they have now endorsed the mutilation of children. So I think that's that, that's just revelatory of the way in which institutions' missions have not only been inverted, they've been turned upside down, but have gone out to attack as well. So it's not just that they've sort of drifted and become complacent and no longer really you know hold standards and rigor. I think that's I think that's that's the case. But they've also been weaponized against the majority of people who don't hold those kinds of views. And that's happening across the board. I mean, I don't know if how much you're following the scandal of um, higher education in the United States, but the president of the president of Harvard University is guilty of plagiarism, and that, that's not a question of interpretation or partisan politics or culture wars. She has plagiarized repeatedly in her academic career, and yet she's going to remain the president of Harvard University. So again, another revelatory moment. How do we take any of the old institutions seriously when they don't follow their own rules and in fact weaponize themselves against the majority of the public when they're even called to account for their own hypocrisy? So that's, that's another reason I think it's time. And I recognize the, the challenge here, the overwhelming challenge, but I don't see any option but to build a kind of parallel society and then over time make that the norm again. Can we just take this down to the ground level for a moment? Because um, you just said that, you know, 
those decisions are taken a long way from how most people feel about things. You know, most people are not comfortable with these kinds of changes. The, the majority of, of our country and of yours are clearly not comfortable with this. And so there's an issue about um, trusting the people and they're trusting ordinary local people. And I think this takes us back to what we were talking about much earlier about the practices. You know, the, what, what are the practices that Christians are called to in this moment? I mean, on the one on one level, you know, we can talk the big politics, and on the other at the other end of the spectrum, is it how do people live in the local with their neighbours, and how do you build um, trust or or recognise that how how important trust is between neighbours? And again, this goes back to you know, lots of parts of Catholic social teaching tradition, uh, which is very much focused on relationship and solidarity, which you mentioned earlier. And also back in the earlier part of our conversation when we were talking about how uh, political economy has been pushed out of the space, you know, in favour of of other kinds of, I would argue, you know, distractions from the core core justice issues of, of inequality and... Uh, you know, the problems with the economy. So I'm interested to hear what you think about uh, the church's engagement in the local and what what you feel um, a local congregation can do and what they're called to. We, we discuss this a lot and we get people on, deliberately on our podcast to hear their stories about how they're building relationships in the local. And these might sound very kind of innocuous in some ways. But we think that's the work. We think that is actually how the reweaving happens. But I'm very interested to hear from from word on fire position, from your position. Um, yeah, how how does that fit with the way you see the the church emerging and growing and changing through this period? One of word on fire's fundamental sort of strategic paths to get into the culture is, and this comes from Bishop Barron, is to lead, lead with beauty. Uh, as Bishop Barron frequently puts it, uh, we live in an age that uh, truth, people are very skeptical of the word truth. Uh, people are, are very skeptical of the word goodness, especially if we, you know, we tie it to morality. Um, but there still may be an openness to beauty. So sort of the first, not, not the only or not the final, but the first entree into the culture is to build beautiful things. And, and this, this is, this is something that, um, that I think the, the Catholic church in particular has also not lived up to. Um, it, it varies from, from place to place, but the United States, most of the churches built in the past, say, uh, 60 years are very ugly. I <laughs> they mean, they're, are. <laughs> they, yeah, they're, it's the, it's, they're non, they're anti-transcendent. If there can yep, be there's so. no awe. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. And whatever the motive was, maybe it was, you know, to be among the people or some, um, you know, some generic sentiment like that, but it, it's, it's a failure. So uh, a return to the great architectural and artistic traditions of uh, Catholicism and Christianity broadly, I think is, is one thing to, to show, to just be a presence of beauty in the world physically. The other thing is, is not to be um, hypocrites, <laughs> Uh, hypocrisy is uh, is poison to evangelization, and and, and their hypocrisy is rampant. And on, on oftentimes, you know, the Christianity is unfairly targeted as being sort of the, the sole domain. The only hypocrites, the only hypocrites out there are you know Christians, and that's not the case. They're 
It's part of the nature of sin. But we have a special obligation not to be hypocrites in every dimension of our lives, both the personal and the, and the public facing. Uh, so really being a testament to the joy and truth that's within us in the most minute actions uh, of life. And this is, this is, a, 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 this is a, an ongoing struggle with me because I'm a sinner, but it's a, a particular struggle with me as well because there's so much to be angry about right now. There's so much to be despondent about. There's so much that gets that literally raises my blood pressure when I read it day to day to day, both inside and outside the church, that I'm highly tempted to feed the flames. And I know I've used some very strong language in, in our own conversation, and I do stand behind it. But to the extent that we are being prophetic, to the extent that we are calling the culture out, it has to be so that we, 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 we move back to, to beauty or we move beyond it to beauty, we move beyond it to normalcy, we move beyond it to joy and to, and to a sense of, of, of just people living normal lives. So to the extent that we can provide that, we can model it and then, and then invite people into it. I think that's really not only the best path. I think that's ultimately the only path embracing the path of the warrior uh, has its place. I mean, the spiritual warrior, I mean, has its place, but if that's where we stay, we've already lost that, that battle. We have to move into becoming mainstream again. There might, there might be some people listening to this who, um, aren't so familiar with the, you know, the kind of, uh, intellectual tradition that you've been, uh, explaining and they might have really just come across the Catholic church in sort of headlines and they might be thinking hold on a minute what about the elephant in the room here what about the guilt of the catholic church the hypocrisy of the catholic church itself you know isn't that the elephant in the room and uh i mean i i sometimes get that you know when i'm teaching you know introducing people to catholic social teaching they'll say hold on what what do you you know and i'll say well i'm not here to represent the catholic church i'm just someone that's i happen to be a catholic and i've found the the tradition of the justice tradition, I think it's very powerful and very helpful, but I'm not responsible for the the sins of, you know, pe- individuals that have uh, strayed along the way and, you know, the, the, the cover-ups and so on. I completely acknowledge all of that. And, and this is a great wound, a self-inflicted wound, I think you've called it. Um, so I think, I think it's important to say something about how the church itself has been affected um, over over the decades, um, yes. Perhaps, uh, would you say it is from the the external culture, or would you say that it's a culture of individualism that's affected church leadership, clericalism? I mean, how, what would you attribute it to? Uh, all of the above. The, the The first thing that I would say is, uh, and this is a highly theological, but also a very practical point, is uh, for those who know anything about Christianity, the first apostles, the first. 12 disciples around you, uh, uh, Jesus included who? Uh, Judas. So the great betrayer has been and will be with the church forever. And so in a sense, this is this shouldn't come as a surprise to Christians that not only are there sinners within the church, but they're sort of the, the, the worst form of sinner, the, the, the very betrayers of Christ. And Jesus has searing words for, the, for them. Um, for those, you know, those who who corrupt any of the little ones, it would be better for them, you know, to have a mill, millstone put around their neck and and, and put out to sea. Mm-hmm. 
Those are Jesus's words about those who corrupt his church. But there's also a recognition that they're there. And that's part of the, the, the reality of human freedom. Uh, that doesn't mean that we excuse it. It doesn't mean that we uh, uh, minimize it. Uh, it does mean that it's a feature of fallen humanity, and it will especially be in the church mm-hmm. because that's where, from a Christian perspective, think about this from a Christian perspective. The devil has limit. The devil's not God, and so the devil has limited resources by definition. And we could we could say evil. Evil has limited resources because it's parasitic. So it's strategically going to attack where? It's strategically going to attack where it's able to do the most damage and cause the most chaos. And where's that going to be? At the heart of, at the, heart of the, the, the institutional church. And so it's, it's shocking. It's awful. It's shameful. As a Catholic, I, I get angry when I meditate on it too much. Um, but it's also built into the structure of sin itself. And so the question is, is, what do we do about it? And what we do about it is we say, stop being hypocrites. That's one of Jesus's, uh, his, his most common uh, title for, for those who are around him. Hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. So uh, insofar as we're looking out onto the culture and making diagnoses, which I think are fair, I think, I think we're accurately portraying the evil that's out there. The first act always, the first and last act, last act always has to be, mm-hmm. am, am I contributing to the wickedness or am I being a net drain on the wickedness? Am I, am I helping absorb it or, or am I making more of it? And so it starts with each one of us. It starts with the priests. It starts with the religious orders. Uh, it starts, I know it sounds cliche, but it starts at home. Yeah. So I want to go back again to the institution question. Um, and um, because you, you are saying, and, and, and I have a, a fair bit of sympathy for this, that one of our responses to this culture we've been describing is we need to, we need to create new kinds of institutions, particularly in the local. So I'm a Protestant. I'm not a Catholic. I listen and I work with large, large numbers of Protestant leaders in the churches and their systems. And overall, overall, the the underlying drive is the question of, we get all this, how do we fix our institutions? And so you've got innovation, adaptation, and use all the languages borrowed from all the places. And, And they want... There's this belief that the fix can happen and it can change things soon. But making new institutions is a slow, long journey. It doesn't just happen overnight. And so it's, it sounds like you are calling for communities of what I would call anticipatory hope. That is not institutions that... If we make them today, they'll fix everything tomorrow. But it's a long journey in which we are anticipating God's future and God's work. But in the moment, not a lot's going to change. I mean, am I am I reading that correctly or not? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a, again, it's very practical advice, but it's also theologically warranted. Uh, I mean, the, Christianity is a religion of hope, and what that means in a sort of in a more specific sense is that that. 
whatever work we do here in our lifetime, sort of specifically understood or broadly humanity over the space of history is not going to complete the work. Right. So it's, it's the already not yet paradigm. So the kingdom of God will never be built by human hands in time and space, period. And to claim otherwise is not only delusional, it's dangerous. But to, uh, to, to press that a bit, I mean, we put a man on the moon. <laughs> We're going to Mars. We can do these things. And we have the, you know, the with my kids many years ago, we used to watch what was called the $6 million man. Uh, you know, we have the technology. We can do it. Somewhere inside what you're saying is a is an utterly different narrative, which is, I think, and is which is then we have to lay down our conviction and our sense that we have the agency to fix. And we need to enter a very different posture if those new institutions are to emerge. Um that, that that's I think that's implicit in what you're trying to describe. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, we, the the dominant posture should be one seasoned by both humility and courage. Mm-hmm. So, humility in 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 the sense of recognizing that that we are sinners and we have to be ever vigilant that we are not replicating sin in this new creation that we're seeking to establish. This new mm-hmm. institution. One of the ways that I like to describe sin, which is now. Um, sort of, we, we can actually point to it in, in, in practice. Is uh, we 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 are like a a creature that created a virus, let's say a computer virus or a lab virus, that we can no longer control. So we made it. It was not part of original nature. I'm talking about sin here. It was not intended. It was not. It's not for our benefit. It's not for the benefit of everybody. We made it. And now that we made it, we can't unmake it. And in fact, Correct. every time that we try to unmake it, we just replicate it. And the virus at that point sort of takes on a life of its own. So we see this, for example, in AI, and we see this in the creation of, you know, what happened with the, the COVID-19. And so um, sin is like that. So we, we have to confront it on its own terms, recognizing that we cannot overcome it on its on our own. And the moment we think we can, we're going to make things a thousand times worse. And at the same time, we can diminish it. So we can't overcome it, but we can't, if things can be better or worse. So within that horizon of we're not God and we're not going to create heaven on earth, but things can be better or worse, that's where we do our work. Yeah. And that's what both motivates us to, to create change, but also prevents us from utopian disasters. Matt, I'm really interested that throughout this conversation, although your work is sort of labeled evangelism, you've really talked in such a fascinating and granular way about, you know, social life and grounded life. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't feel like a proselytizing evangelism that you've brought to this, this work. And I, I'm particularly interested in this, uh, what I would call a false dichotomy within not just the Catholic church, but other churches too, that you often get all the evangelization people over here and all the social <laughs> people over there. And they don't like each other and they don't use the same language they tend to have different, they think they have different politics and so on and so forth. And it's a, it's a real, um, I think it would cause cause Jesus pain. You know, I think it's a, a, a division in the church that, that really should be bridged. And I kind of hear that you're doing that in, in the way that you're approaching the ethics, uh, the, the way you speak about that. But 
I suppose just putting that in the background, what I'm interested in now is, you know, what, what do you think God is saying to us about the way the church is changing? You know, in the West, we're seeing quite sharp decline in some places. Other parts of the world, we're seeing growth. You know, we're seeing growth in the Pentecostal movement, in the non-denominational movement. Um, the Anglican Church is declining very fast. Catholic Church, certainly in the UK, would decline very fast were it not for our migration. Uh, it's propped up by um, refugees and, and people coming from other countries. So there's there's something very powerful going on uh, that that we would we would say you know God is doing that you know God must must be at work throughout all of this and we don't really feel it's right to be despondent in the sense that He must be teaching us something through this and sometimes I wonder if He's sort of chastening us or or showing us something that we've been missing and and I think when you were speaking earlier about you know, when we were talking about agency and, uh, you know, people feeling decisions being taken over their heads and so on, I also get very exercised about the way the church has become very middle class and um, lost its connection with grounded communities, with working class people, with poor communities. Yeah. And and that, and they're meant to be at the heart of the church. So something fundamental has gone wrong there. And I do wonder whether God is saying or trying to teach us something through this period of burning off and refining perhaps i'm wondering what your reflection is on that because sometimes people talk about parish renewal like it can all just be built back again it's going to be fine um but actually we think something very different might happen we certainly don't know the outcome but i'd love to hear your reflection on that yeah i i think there's there's deep scriptural precedent for god teaching humanity through historical events so that's um, if, if you take the Bible seriously, then that's certainly the possibility that we have to always keep in mind that there's some kind of moral and theological interpretation we can give to history. I would just add to that, though, that it's important always to make a distinction between God's um, active will, what God intends directly to happen, and God's permissive will, what God permits to happen um, but with always the, the the caveat that God can bring good out of the evil that that we create. Um, so the only reason I say that is I think there's we we can go too far down that rabbit hole where we start interpreting events saying with oh, God this is God doing this this is God doing that uh, when in fact it may be that God is permitting something to happen and we can't really understand how that's connected to some kind of future providential uh, mm-hmm. set of affairs. What I would say is for and this is for all of us. Who identify? Who are? I don't like the words. Who are Christian? We don't identify as Christian. We're not something, and then we put on like a Christian cloak, like a T-shirt. Uh, we are Christian. It's 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 the very structure of our reality. If we're if we're living up to what we say we are, uh, for Christians and non-Christians, I think the fundamental question is, what is the truth, and am I living according to it? So you brought up before the problem of hypocrisy, which is it's, it's psychologically repellent. It's very clear why people flee when they see hypocrites. But that's also giving perhaps too much credit to the people who have fleed because the question is, is okay, have you fleed something evil or have you fleed something good that's been, um, that, that people are not living up to? So the question is, is what's truly the case? And someone who says, well, how can we know, uh, you know, this person says that, this religion says that, that that's, that's an ex- I'm sorry, that's an excuse we all have the responsibility to seek the truth. We can't not seek the truth. We can pretend that we're not seeking it, but even in that pretending is a way of seeking it. 
It's a way of throwing it, throwing away, giving away our responsibility to others, choosing to. And so all of us individually have to seek the truth. And then as we, as we come to identify it, then we ask ourselves, am I living up to it? And so Christianity is a radical religion. It's a historical religion. It's a public religion. It's a religion that says that we follow a crucified God-man. There's there's nothing sort of mainstream by secular standards about it. But that's what we claim to be true. And so that, that dimension of what it means to be true, that radicalism has to be present, not just in our liturgical life. So you were saying, you know, the, the people who are very pious, and that's good. And not just in our, our social justice life or our, our, our work out in the communities. It has to be a full, unified be, way of being in the world, in, in public and private, because there really aren't that distinction mm. doesn't really make sense for a Christian. Uh, and then literally we, we can't do anything else. And I mean that in a literal sense. We, we really can't do more than do our best to be faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. But we shouldn't do anything less. So if, I, if I'm understanding it, word on fire sounds like from the outside a, a means of giving back to Christians their grounding in the reality of God's presence amongst them. Now, around that, there is, here's some apologetics, here's this, here's these. But underneath it, that's what the base is about. And it reminds me of the, um, the, the Jewish sociologist who about 20, 30 years ago wrote a book. His name was Adam Seligman. And the book was called uh, Modernity's Wager. And Modernity's Wager is life can be lived well without God. And <laughs> my experience is that's most Protestant churches, except God is there as kind of a, some kind of quasi-guarantor of what I want. And what, <laughs> what, what's going on in um, Word on Fire is that you're, you're seeking to confront that narrative and invite people back into a grounding in God's life and God's presence. My question is, how is that working itself out on the ground in the parish? Because at the end of the day, my bias, the parish has to be the generator of alternative life. Yeah, so one way that I've framed the work we're doing at at the Word on Fire Institute is we have to be doing all of the above. So uh, we have to be a, we have to be missionary. We have to be monastic. We have to be sort of in, inhabiting in the idea of the cathedral, sort of a celebration of the, the, the great beauty of living according to the full truth of, of God in the world and through Jesus Christ as it's physically manifested. And I think of the old, you know, European squares, right? The cathedral, the public is built around the cathedral. That doesn't mean the cathedral owns the public. No, no. Yeah, but you're right. The culmination, right? And we also have to be parochial in the positive sense of the term parochial. I mean, how do you do the parish? Yep. Uh, and, and so we have to do all those things at the same time. If we don't, then what, then the failure of one area is going to affect the others. Yep. And we can actually see sociologically where parishes are thriving and where are they? Where are they growing? They're growing where they are most, they take most seriously the Christian life liturgically and and there is a uh, there is a bias there. Um, there's you know theological liberals. I'll just call them that. Uh, you know, like to poo poo these these parishes that are, that are growing by saying you know they don't care about justice. 
That's that's not true. I mean, you can find instances of it, but generally speaking, those parishes that are most liturgically serious are also the ones that are out in the community. Mm -hmm. They're out on the street corners. They actually are doing the sort of the classical evangelization. Like, can I pray for you just to people walking by them on the street? Uh, So we we look, we know it works. We actually know it works. It's a question more of courage than of a lack of knowledge, Mm -hmm. I would say. Isn't it also, though, the way that um, the way it plays out is how it affects the individual behavior of each person in the congregation? You know, how what kind of person are they as a result of being a member of this church community? How does that look? You know, what kind of neighbor are they? You know, what kind of friend are they? Absolutely. It it comes down to that, doesn't it? And one of the things we're interested in is what we would call practices. You know, some of the stories we're hearing, um, and sometimes they're from Christians who are not part of an organized church. I wonder what you think of that. You know, they're because perhaps they've, either they've become disillusioned or, you know, they haven't got a church locally that fits where they feel called, but they have clearly some kind of vocation. And um, the vocation or the calling is to build relationships with their neighbours and to be present and to walk alongside people. Um, you know, some are attached to churches. So I'm just saying that there are a variety of different signs emerging sure. at this time of how the Holy Spirit is working in people's lives. And I think where it where the rubber really hits the road is... Yeah, you can have great liturgy and beautiful buildings and so on, but it's actually how people encounter another person in a relationship and what difference that makes in their lives and whether that person can perhaps detect the movement of God in that in that conversation. Yeah, I, th- I think that's I think that's right. I mean, we we certainly I'm sure everybody watching uh, knows someone or knows of someone who knows someone who is in that category of you know doesn't belong to a particular. Uh, institutional church, but seems to be on fire and, and really making mm-hmm. a difference. And of course, that's that's beautiful uh, insofar as it goes. Um, but I would caution. I would just add these words of caution: um, the the spiritual but not religious framework, which is also a product of a political ideology, not a religious ideology, because mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense religiously. Uh, but it's been ba- it's so political political category created that and then imported it into the religious. Uh, is functionally and ultimately theologically indistinguishable from idolatry. Mm-hmm. It means I'm going to create my own religion. Mm-hmm. And that that may work insofar as in an individual's life at this time, you know, they have this idea in their head that's motivating them that they don't locate within any particular tradition and it's motivating them. Mm-hmm. But I would also say it's highly likely, if not guaranteed, that at some point there'll be a crisis a crisis of truth, a crisis, a moral crisis, a crisis of great suffering, where they'll say, what, what am I basing this on? And when they say, mm-hmm. oh, well, the Bible, I say, well, what interpretation of the Bible? And how do I come to any, any understanding of which interpretation is authoritative? In other words, they'll start getting them back, back into the institutional church in order to solve the problem that has now encountered them. So mm-hmm. I, I, have, I have friends who are on fire, who are evangelicals, who are just mm-hmm. on fire. Uh, and I, they're great examples no, I, I'm with I'm with you on that. I my from my own situation, you know, I converted after a, a conversion experience. I didn't convert to become a Catholic through an intellectual decision. And um finding myself in the Catholic Church, realizing what a flawed institution it was, and you know, having been in that relationship for over 35 years, I'm very conscious of all its problems. 
every time I'm in church, I'm conscious of those problems. But I think the point, one of the points you're making there is, it's not, yeah, it's when, when the chips are down, when, when something goes wrong, it's like, where does authority lie? Yeah. And, and also accountability, accountability to a, a group of people who are all, all struggling together, all walking together, all trying to reconcile their relationship with God somehow and with each other. Um, that's a very beautiful thing, the walking wounded in a sense, because as you said, we're all sinners, we're all um, you know, failing in all kinds of different ways. But to have that sense of walking together within a structure that we know is flawed, there's, there's just something very beautifully human about that. That's right, yeah. There's a story, um, and we may want to end on this, where a friend of mine describes how one of his colleagues phoned him up, and in the conversation, this, friend, this, this colleague is saying, we're not going to church anymore. It's just not meeting our needs. Uh, it's not the kind of thing, like, it's, it's, it's just not where we are anymore. We're, we're, we'll, we'll go our own way. And then about six months later, uh, this colleague calls my friend up again and says to him, Mark, uh, we were looking at the Bible the other day and this text came up and we were not clear what it meant. And Mark said, well, name doesn't matter. It, it really doesn't matter because the Bible's not meant for you. It's meant for a community of people who are wrestling together with how to that's live true. together. And you don't need that. <laughs> but but that's the beauty of that community that, mm-hmm. and, and there are so many who've decided that they can go it all by themselves and alone. That kind of solipsistic individualism mm-hmm. that we've been mm-hmm. talking about. And mm-hmm. at the at the heart of it, this God calls us into these, this flawed community uh, that forms us. Um, that's right. And that's the hope. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Um, Matt, do, do say something final, finally. Any thoughts that you'd like to share before we wrap up? Well, I, 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 again, I want to thank you uh, both for, for having me on this, um, on your podcast. And I really just tell you again how impressed I am by the work that you're doing and how hopeful it makes me. Um, because again, speaking very personally, I, every day I struggle with that, that, that temptation to despair, that temptation to the problem is too much, that temptation to, it doesn't matter what I do. The darkness just keeps advancing and, and it's all a fool's errand to try and resist it. And then I get reminded daily that that's a false understanding of reality. And in fact, it's, it's, um, it's just, it's indulgent. It's, it's making me feel like I, I, I uh, don't have to get up every morning and continue to fight the good fight because others are doing it and you are doing that. So, so thank you for your work. Another thing I would say is, um, for the, for those of you, or those of your listeners who, uh, uh, who, you know, maybe have been exposed to, um, to Christianity and may, maybe, you know, you might even have a kind of skepticism or maybe even stronger than that, a kind of repulsion to it, but they're still, you're still just curious about what's going on there. Um, that, you know, uh, I, Christians are, are fallen people just like everyone else, but our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope, our, our source of meaning is not in ourselves. Our, uh, um, uh, the, the reason we get up in the morning is ultimately not even in ourselves. It's in the Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. And everything that we believe as Christians, we believe it literally, not, not in, in this specific sense, Jesus Christ, real person, real crucifixion, 
real resurrection. He bled out for us. He swallowed death into his very body. He swallowed all despair, all decay, all meaninglessness, every terror and fear that humanity experiences. He literally took into his body and swallowed it up for us and reestablished that bridge to peace and meaning and, and mm. eternal life in, in, the, in the sense of heaven, but also peace and meaning now. Yeah. And so I would just encourage you all listening to, to take that offer and invitation seriously, not coming from me, because <laughs> I get anything out of it, except for the happiness that other people get when they find the Lord Jesus. Uh, but as an alternative to the darkness that surrounds you, that's, yeah. that's Amen. what I would say. Amen. Thank you, Matt. We've, we've really enjoyed this conversation. I mean, and, too. Um, all the best to you and your work and bless you and your work. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both. God bless both of you too. And you too. You've been an encouragement because even in spite of your words, <laughs> you, you represent a light and a hope and an energy where God is at work. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Leaving Egypt. We look forward to you joining us again on the next episode. In the meantime, you can find out more at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk And you can find me on alanroxborough.com And do check out Leaving Egypt on Substack too. This podcast is brought to you by Together for the Common Good and the Missional Network. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you'd normally listen to your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. So that's it from us. I'm Al Roxborough. And I'm Jenny Sinclair. Thank you so much for listening. God bless and see you soon. Mm-hmm.